from Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 20 to 24. Look up and see those who are coming from the north. Where is the flock that was entrusted to you, the sheep of which you boasted? What will you say when the Lord sets over you, those you cultivated as your special allies? Will not pain grip you like that of a woman in labor? And if you ask yourself, why has this happened to me? It is because of your many signs, sins, that your skirts have been torn off and your body mistreated. Can an Ethiopian change his, change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the desert wind. Good morning. It is a delight to see you. It always is a joy to be here. We have uh, walked out of my office and saw some friends from way, way back. They were members early at Avondale when we got there, and they happened to be here because their daughter is getting married, and she lives down in Dripping Springs. So it was a delight to see them. Glad they're here. But then I saw some sisters from Arnold, Missouri, who were here on a girl's trip in Austin, and they came over and saw them as well. And then these fine people showed up, and uh, they're from Avondale, Brian and Shaniqua, and we just uh, had a lot of company this week, and it's been great. And I'm sure you'll meet them, and they'll be welcomed, and we're always glad that you're here. We are in the midst of a series of thoughts on the subject of change, and this is part two of that series. If you are in Jeremiah chapter 13, that will be great, because we'll start there and try to explain what we had read for us this morning. We are coming to the point where God is talking about Judah going into captivity. That's what's being discussed in these, these, this section of Scripture. And the reason for that is because God's history with Israel had, has led them here. If you go back to Exodus chapter 1 and begin reading there, you'll begin reading about God hearing the cries of His people and ultimately that God is going to deliver them. And for the first 14 chapters of that book, that's what you'll read about. The plagues are ultimately to bring God's people out of Egyptian bondage. In Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31, it will say that God saved them that day as they crossed through the sea. When you read chapter 15, Israel rejoices over that deliverance, and they praise God, and they sing to Him, and it is a wonderful celebration of deliverance, and they're very thrilled about that. But by the time you get to the end of chapter 15 in Exodus, they will be murmuring, complaining against God. They will want water, and God will provide for them water. But as you open up chapter 16, you read the first few verses, and again, they will be murmuring, complaining against God. You read chapter 17, after God provides them the food that they wanted in 16, He does do that, and they complain again in chapter 17, the early parts of that chapter. God will again, of course, provide, but this begins to be the history of this nation. Chapter 18 and chapter 19, God will give them deliverance again through His people. Moses and Jethro will talk about how to provide for God's people, and Jethro will give Moses counsel, and he'll do that. In chapter 19, God will say, prepare to meet God. Moses will tell them that, and they will wash, and they will be ready. And of course, chapter 20, God will come on the mount and begin to give them the law, His law. And while they are afraid to 
to hear God any longer, they'll tell Moses to go up unto God and get it for us lest we die. And while Moses is on the mount receiving that law, by the time you get to chapter 32 of the book of Exodus, they will make themselves gods. They will make themselves golden calves, a golden calf, and Aaron will fashion it, and they will say, this is the God that delivered us. Now, this is hardly the end. They're in the process of getting a law written by the finger of God, but they have already rejected him and made themselves an idol. This history with Israel will long continue. And you get to the book of Numbers, chapter 13 and 14, the 10 faithless spies will go into the land, but they will come back and say, we can't do it. We can't take the land. We were grasshoppers in their sight, and we can't take it. In fact, they will move the entire nation to say, let's kill Moses, make us a new captain, and let's go back into Egypt, into bondage. God will again solve that issue but you'll get to chapter 16. And in chapter 16, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On will want to wrestle the priesthood from Aaron. You get to the book of Joshua, and again, Joshua will say to the people, if it seem evil for you to serve the Lord, then choose ye this day. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You open up the book of Judges, the early part of chapter 2 in the book of Judges, that book would be described in two ways. One, it will say there arose a generation which knew not God. And at least twice in that book, it will say every man did that which was right in his own eyes. 1 Samuel chapter 8, this same group of people, this nation will say to Samuel, make us a king so that we can be like all the nations around us. God will say to Samuel, they've not rejected thee, they've rejected me, that I should not rule over them. First Samuel chapter 11, Solomon will bring idolatry into the nation. The wisest king, the most powerful king, the richest king. God warned twice he spoke to Solomon about this. Don't marry foreign wives. Don't go after them because they will turn away your heart from following me. The Bible will say Solomon cleaved to these in love, and sure enough, they turned away his heart. Idolatry now in the land, Solomon giving himself to it. God will say, I'm going to divide the kingdom. I'm going to take it from you. And so we have the divided kingdom in chapter 12, 10 nations or 10 tribes in the north, two in the south, and that northern group of 10 never had a faithful king. In fact, they were idolatrous from their inception until their end. 721, the Assyrians will come and take them away. Judah will watch that and have occasionally a righteous king, but they will watch that. And by the time we get to Jeremiah, Jeremiah is saying, Judah, it's your turn. You now will go into captivity for the same reasons because of your unfaithfulness. It's that background that brings us to chapter 13 and verse number 20 and will inevitably provide the background for our sermon this morning. Notice in verse number 20, the Bible speaks of them coming from the north. That is, the nation of Babylon will come from the north down into Judah. The next thing he says in verse 21 is when they arrive, they will be merciless. He talks about their pains like a woman in childbirth, the end of verse 21. In verse 22, he says that you might question why you're suffering, and if you shall say in your heart, why are these things happening to me? 
he will say, because of the magnitude of your iniquity, that's why. It's with this in conclusion in mind that God then asks two rhetorical questions. He provides the answers, and then he likens the answer to Judah's ability to do good. And so he asks in verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin? The answer is no. He cannot change his skin. The second question is, or the leopard his spots? The answer is no. He cannot change his spots. It's with that in mind that God then asks, well, then you can also do good. Their chances of doing good is like the Ethiopian changing his skin or the leopard his spots. Now, it sounds like that's an impossibility. I thought you said last week change was possible. Change is doable. Yes, it is. But here you have a situation where clearly God is saying you can't change because an Ethiopian can't change his skin and a leopard can't change his spots. Well, why can't Judah do good? Look at the last part of verse 23. He says you can't do good because you are accustomed to doing evil. And it's not the case that ultimately they couldn't change. But that history that we just walked through briefly is an indication that they will not change. And it brings us to our subject this morning. Last week we talked about change, and we said change is possible. For alliteration's sake, let me change that to change is doable. It is. It is absolutely something we can do. And as we ended last week's sermon, some people have. But that brings us to point number two in our series of thoughts, and that is this, change is difficult. Change is difficult for several reasons. We'll note four. Number one, change is difficult because choices create character. Jesus is talking to these very people, at least their descendants. And they are behaving toward Jesus the way their fathers behaved toward the prophets. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus and some of the Jews are in, I hate to call and suggest that our Lord was arguing, because that's not really what I mean. But I mean the conversation was not a light one. It was not an easy one. Names were called. They referred to him as being born in fornication. It's in that conversation that it takes place. They're discussing who their father is, and they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, if Abraham were your father, you would do the works of Abraham. He says, but now you seek to kill me, a man that tells you the truth. This Abraham did not do. And as you read from about verse 42 down to verse 44, Jesus will ultimately say, you are of your father, the devil. And the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. And when he speaketh of a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Jesus is talking to the descendants of those people that we talked about in the past. And what they are doing to Jesus is precisely what their fathers have done. Their religion was insincere, and Jesus knew it. He called him out on it. In Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 28, another one of those conversations where there's a backwards and forwards, and our Lord, Lord is not pulling any punches. He's, he's speaking very plainly about their state. 
He says in verse 23 of Matthew 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets. You garnish the sepulchers of the righteous, and you say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Jesus' conclusion about that is in verse 31, where he says, Wherefore ye be witness unto yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. What did they do then? They behaved just like their fathers. The people in Jeremiah's day, they behaved just like them. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen will recount their history for them. And as he walks through the history, some of the same things we noted with regards to how God chose Abraham and all of the things that God did through Moses and all of the prophets and how God had ultimately brought even our Lord to them. As Stephen nears the end of his sermon, beginning in Acts 7 and verse 51, this is what he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost, and as your fathers did, so do ye. He asked the question, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom now you have been the betrayers and murderers. You who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. True to form, what's their reaction to that? Verse 54 says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, they gnashed on him with their teeth, and they cast him out of the city. They stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jeremiah said, can you do good? Their ability to do good is as likely as the Ethiopians changing his skin and the leopard his spots because they are accustomed to doing evil. When you are accustomed to doing something, it is hard to change it. Choices create character. It used to be that, well, that's just what he does. But if you do it long enough, it will become that's just who he is. If you want to change, you might ask and answer the question, have I become my choices? Have you done it so long that it's no longer a choice at all? It's just now part of my character. It's who I am. Change can be difficult when you are accustomed to doing something. Point number two, change is difficult because it's easier not to. The truth of the matter is, it's simply easier not to change. In Matthew chapter 7, in verse number 13 and 14, Jesus talks about two gates, two ways, and two destinations. He also talks about two groups of people and how they'll travel and navigate those. 
He says in verse number 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leadeth unto destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Breaking that verse down just a little bit, it sounds very much like the Lord intends for us to know that the broad gate is the easy way. The broad gate is the path of least resistance. The broad gate is the most populated way. But he also warns the broad way leads to destruction. And many of the people, many there be which go in thereat. You see that again in the life of those who interacted with our Savior and the apostles. God came to earth in a body, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Down to verse number 10, it says, He came to His own, His own received Him not. Verse number 14 says, The Word made flesh, became flesh, and dwelt among us, tabled among us. Verse number 18, The Word declared the Father, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word did all of that, moving men, ideally, to believe that He is. In fact, He says it frequently, John chapter 4, the woman said, We know that Messiah is coming. Jesus said, I just speak to you, am He? In John chapter 6, He said, The bread of life is He which cometh down from heaven. If you eat of me and drink of me, you will live forever. The word that I speak unto you is spirit and life, John 6, 63. Philip chapter 14, have I been so long time with you and not you have not known me? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. John chapter 17, verse number 3, this is life eternal, that they would know you and believe in me. That's what Jesus did, and that's what he came to do. But the Jews found it easier to continue what they were doing than to change and do something different. They had a system in place that suited them, and so they rejected and refused to believe in Jesus. Even as they admitted and acknowledged who he was and what he had done, one of those admissions is in John chapter 9. At the very least, it's an acknowledgment by them. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was blind from his birth. The first five verses of that chapter, the apostles asked, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, Neither his parents nor he had sinned, but that the work of God, the glory of God might be manifested in him. I must work the works of him while, he, while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. Jesus healed that man, and everybody knew it. At least they began to wonder, is that him? Is that him? And he said, yes, it's me. I was blind. That was me. How do you see? A man made some spittle, put it in the clay, put it on my eyes, and now I see. Instead of believing, they went to the Pharisees, and they told him. And the Pharisees convened, and they began to question him. How did you come to see? He said, I told you that he healed me, that he made me see. They said, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. The man said again, he healed me. They said, get his parents. Call his parents and ask them. The parents came. They stood before the Pharisees and they asked, is this your son whom you say was born blind? I always find that hilarious. I just think that's funny. Who we say is born blind? We're just going around telling people that. That's just what we're doing. No, we know that was our son. Absolutely, that was our son. And yes, he was blind, but how he sees, we don't know. In fact, the parents say, ask him. He's of age. In verse 22 of that chapter, the Bible tells us why his parents said that. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. 
For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. We're not talking about evidence. We're not talking about truth. We are not going to believe, and it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what he does. This disposition continued. In John chapter 12 and verse number 9, much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only. That's a phrase that won't be read very often in the New Testament, not for Jesus' sake only. There's something very special about chapter 12 of the book of John. It's what happens in chapter 11 where a man was dead four days, and Jesus came, and they moved the stone, and Jesus called the man by name and said, come forth, and Lazarus walked out of the tomb. Jesus raised the man from the dead, and that man is sitting with Jesus and sharing a meal. And people hear about it. In fact, they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also whom he had raised from the dead. Surely everybody will believe now. No, the very next verse says, but, but the chief priest consulted that they might put Lazarus to death. Now, I want you to pause and think about that for just a moment. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and your solution to that is kill him. Jesus could raise him again. It's not a problem for Jesus. He's already raised him from the dead. You would think that would be convincing, but it is not for these individuals. In fact, they just say, let's put him to death, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed. We don't want to believe. We refuse to believe. And if anybody else believes, we'll put them out. You'll find the same thing in Acts chapter 4, verses 4, 14 down to verse 17. Instead of then, they say there, with regards to the man that was healed at the beautiful gate, they say, indeed, a notable miracle has been done, and there is nothing we can say against it. But that is spread no further. Let's threaten them. We rejoice, properly so, over and about the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost coming to obey the gospel. 3,000 souls were saved, Acts 2 and verse 41. What we don't often mention is the fact that the overwhelming majority did not. Most of the Jews did not turn to Jesus. We know the definition of insanity, doing the same thing, expecting different results. However, many people don't change, even though they know they need to. And the sad reality is, it's simply easier not to. There were two gates. There was a narrow gate. The description is quite different. The narrow gate is the more difficult way. The narrow gate is the less populated way. The narrow gate is the way that's found, not simply entered the narrow gate leads to life, and few there be that find it. Thirdly, change is difficult because self-deception is hard to overcome. Might be the case that you simply don't see the need to change. Proverbs 16, 25 describes a man in these words. There is a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof is the way of death. 
a sobering, maybe even scary message is simply this. I could be my own worst enemy. I could be giving myself bad counsel. I could, on my own, hear and argue against the truth. Consider more of Jeremiah's words. Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? A, a more loose rendering of that passage sounds like this. You people of Judah are so deceitful that you even fool yourselves and can't change, someone wrote. The Jews had deceived themselves. Jesus was in their midst. They saw him. They heard him. He taught as one having authority, not as others had taught. They saw the miracles, all kinds of miracles, over every spectrum that's imaginable. Power over nature. He rebuked the winds and the seas. Power over matter, took a few bread and fish and fed 9,000 people. Power over demons, the spirit world, he cast them out and they obeyed. Power over sickness, he touched the leper and he was healed. The dropsy and the blood and all of the things, power over death, he raised the dead, fulfilled prophecy in their midst. And still they said, show us a sign. They said, you are mad, you blaspheme, and you are a deceiver. And then they acted, not on truth, but on their own heart. And so they lied on him, envied him, spit on him, mocked him, scourged him, delivered him, and then crucified him. Have you heard the truth? in areas in your life where you need to change and rejected it? Paul writes of some individuals who will suffer greatly from this very thing. In 2 Thessalonians 2, in verse number 10, he says, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Now, why are they going to perish, Paul? Two or three times he says it. Number one, he says, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Question, how long have you known you needed to change? How often have you heard the truth? Maybe. Maybe you've convinced yourself that you know the way and that the way you're going is the right way. There is a way that seems right. Although Jeremiah would warn, Jeremiah 10, 23, O Lord, I know the way of man is not within himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. Maybe you've convinced yourself that those telling you to change are the ones who need to change. Ahab did. Despite all that he had done, 1 Kings 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, despite all of it, when he met Elijah, he said, are you the troubler of Israel? To which Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house has, in that you've departed from the living God. Maybe your conscience is clear. People have tendency to say that. My heart's pure in this matter. 
My, my conscience is clean. Maybe it is. Saul of Tarsus was. Acts chapter 23 and verse number 1, he says, Men and brethren, I stand before you with a clear conscience. I stand before you, and my conscience has been good all the way up to this day. In Acts chapter 26 and verse number 9, he said, I thought within myself that I should do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I did. Later, after meeting Jesus, obeying the gospel, being converted, looking backward, in 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse number 13, he describes himself as that very same time he had the clear conscience, that very same time he was doing many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, he says of himself, who was before a blasphemer, an injurious, and a persecutor, but I did it ignorantly and unbelief. He had a clear conscience. Maybe you do too, but he's doing the wrong thing. It is difficult to change when you think you are doing right. Question, what's convinced you that you're doing right? Is it how you feel? Is it your own thoughts? Is it your personal agenda? Is it the need to be right? Or has God, truth, evidence shown you and your position to be right? Change is difficult because choices become character. Because it's easier not to change. And because self-deception is hard to overcome. Fourthly and finally, change is difficult when your community doesn't want you to change. There are two reasons why a community may not want you to change. The first one is they are absolutely all in on what you're doing. Instead of accountability, you have endorsers. Instead of accountability, you have encouragers and enablers. Our world is not big on change for the better. Because we are not big on personal responsibility and personal accountability. In fact, we have a model that says no one can judge you. No one can say you're wrong. Truth is, you won't be condemned because someone else judges you. You'll do it all by yourself. In Acts chapter 13 and verse number 46, the apostle Paul with Barnabas says these words. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, he is speaking to, like Stephen was, a group of individuals who have heard the gospel, have their history. In fact, in that chapter, he does what Stephen did, walked through their history, brought them down to the very point of Jesus coming and their rejection of Jesus. And then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. See Romans 1, 16 and 17, Jew first also to the Greek. It was necessary. And you had it first. But then he says, but seeing you put it from you, please grab the next phrase, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. You won't go to hell because somebody else judged you. You'll do it all by yourself. You will judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life by the refusal to submit to and obey Jesus Christ. Please appreciate that largely what the world does is they take the position from God and then they simply go the other way. They take the exact opposite position. 
And then they tried to twist what God says in such a way as, as they also then bolster their narrative, try to make God's words sound absolutely ridiculous while making their words sound so genuine, sincere, and pure. A person is going the wrong way. Everybody sees it. They see it. You see it. They know it. You know it. And yet, everybody says, you keep going forward. Nobody can judge you. The person needs to change. God knows that. And so, God provides the means of helping the person change. God gives His Word a guide to our lives and to our souls and ultimately to heaven. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a guide unto my path. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Psalm 119, 104, and 5, and John 8, 31, 32, and John 17, 17. God has given his word to give you the truth to guide you in the right way. But not only that, God has given you his home as a motivation to live right. Heaven is what's ahead of us. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. Everybody knows the burden of sin is heavy. Everybody knows sin is difficult and hard and laborious and hurtful. Everybody knows that. And yet the world says, just keep on going. Nobody can judge you. Jesus says, come to me and I'll help you. But he's given us his people. He's given parents. He's given elders. He's given Christians, the church. He's given preachers. Each is designed to help where change is necessary. And so, you parents, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You elders, watch for their souls. Take heed to yourselves. Feed the church of God, Acts 20, 28. Watch for their souls, Hebrews 13, 17. The church is designed to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ and stir one another up and provoke to good works. What are preachers to do? Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. What is all of that designed to do? Help us change if necessary. And everybody is to judge righteous judgments, John 7, 24. Don't judge according to appearance. Judge righteous judgment. Judge based on evidence. Judge based on truth. Judge based on fact. Question, if no one judges... If no one corrects, if no one instructs, how does anybody change? The world says nobody can judge you. Well, nobody can Who's going to change then? How would we do it? The world also says no one should shame you. Well, that's true. Nobody should shame you. What they don't tell you, though, is that no one should have to. No one should have to because God made us to feel shame. It's part of our conscience. And you can see it in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. Where if you'll read that chapter, after the creation of Adam and Eve and their marriage, 
A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife. The Bible will end that chapter by saying they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. They have no reason to be ashamed because they have no sin. But keep reading. You'll get to Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 6. The Bible says the woman saw the tree that it was good for food, a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit. She did eat, gave it to her husband also, and he did eat. And the eyes of them were opened. Surely you and I appreciate that's not physical sight. They could see prior to that. In fact, it's how they got the fruit. They didn't accidentally stumble upon it. She looked at it. She saw it. Her eyes were opened. What is he saying then? Sin. Her understanding, their understanding of their relationship with God and each other has now changed. And as a result of that, just keep reading because the very next actions they take indicate that it worked. The Bible says they hid themselves. They tried to cover themselves. And why would you do that? Because they felt shame. No, nobody else is to shame you because nobody else should have to. You should feel the shame. The conscience that God gave you, in fact, it's the expectation of God and the disappointment by God when we live in such a way that we can no longer feel any shame. In Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, as Jeremiah talks about the false prophets and how they're propping up God's people and teaching them error and how everybody continue to live a wrong and impure life. In verse number 13, he says, from the least of them even to the greatest of them, Everyone is greedy for gain, and from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely, saying, peace, peace. There is no peace. Verse number 15 asks the question, were they ashamed because of the abominations they have done? No, they were not ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the people. The truth is, we, by ourselves and our inner conscience and our mind, the sensitivity of it being directed by truth, when we violate it, we should feel shame. But we've lost the ability to blush. We lost the ability to be shamed. What happens when that's the case? You can see an example of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I trust that you appreciate that's a member, that, that is a collection, a body of the Lord's church just like here at Westside. And as you read the, the contents of that chapter, I, I, I hope you could imagine that we had a brother and a sister sitting right here on the front row. And this brother or sister is known by everybody. Now, within every body of the Lord's people, we're all struggling, and we don't know one way or the other from week to week what any particular person may or may not be struggling with. We just don't know. But I'm not talking about that which people struggle with and then they're working on and trying to get better. I'm talking about imagine a scenario where everybody in the building knows it. And what is occurring is that man has his father's wife. And everybody knows about it. Not only does everybody know about it, Paul says that not even the world is doing what you're doing. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1, he says, It's reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. What happens when we don't feel shame? Nobody should shame you. You're right. Nobody should shame you. But shouldn't you be ashamed? Shouldn't you be ashamed to walk inside of the Lord's assembly publicly with your father's wife? Shouldn't we all be ashamed? But we're not. Not only are we not ashamed, verse number two says, you're puffed up. In fact, we are not shamed with head bowed and feeling sorry. Our chest is out, our shoulders are back, and we're feeling good. Why? Nobody should judge you. Okay. Nobody should shame you. Okay. You shouldn't even feel your own shame. Let me ask you a question, though, for all of those who love this man and this woman and feel no shame. What happens to him? The church is proud. We're in the know now. Look at us. Boy, we're on the cutting edge. The elders are silent. We don't want to upset the major givers, and so we're just going to be quiet and everybody take it easy. The preacher doesn't preach against it. I don't want to preach a moving sermon, so we're just going to let it go. And the members say, cool beans, because if he can do it, I can do it too. Let me ask you a question. What happens when that man dies and stands before God? It's appointed unto man wants to die. After this, the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. Paul knows that. And so in verse number 5, he says, Deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's concerned about the man's salvation, and so he judges. In fact, he says that too. I have judged already. We have to judge righteously. But there are people who don't want you to change. But secondly, your community may not want you to change because, well, they benefit from you being the way you are. You see, if you change, your change will impact them. If you change, you will expose their deeds. If you change, it might affect the relationship you have with them. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, they'll think it's strange that you don't run anymore with them to the same excess of riots. You see, when you change, by definition, you can't do the same thing. I can't be the same person, go in the same place, doing the same things. I can't because I've changed. Well, I'm still doing that, and I want you to do it with me. If you change, it might suggest that they need to change. If you change... What they know is you may have to let them go. When you learn Christ and change, you will have to let go of complainers. Because from complaining, Philippians 2, 14 and 15, you will move to positivity, rejoicing in the Lord and being able to do things through Christ. You'll have to leave negative people, Philippians 4, 6 through 9, and you'll have to be and you become one of those people who are positive in nature. You, you have to leave people who say, I can't all the time, because now you believe you can through Christ. Change your life, and you may need to change your community. I should warn you before we end, though. Most people won't change. Jesus is not wrong in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, when he contrasts the few with the many. Most people, many people, are going to Broadway, and they're just going to keep going. Few people, in contrast, are going to find 
the narrow way and find life. Change is possible. It's doable. It is. But it's difficult because choices become character, because it's easier not to, because self-deception is hard to overcome, and because your community may not want you to. Change will happen, though. It will happen in one or two ways. Change will happen naturally. This is negative change. It will happen naturally. It's called deterioration. You just leave it alone. It'll deteriorate. It'll change. It'll decompose. It'll rot. It will die. Or change can happen positively, but that happens willfully. That's called improvement. And if we refuse to do the difficult work of positive change, we will fall prey to the negative change of deterioration. Most people in the New Testament did not obey the gospel and become Christians. Most people will simply keep going the broad way through the wide gate that leads to destruction. The only question this morning is, will you? Will you change if it's necessary? Will you meet the difficulty and overcome it? My encouragement to you would be this. We have to learn to embrace and enjoy the difficult so we can reap the benefits that only come from doing and overcoming. If every time it gets difficult, you stop and go backward, then you can never reap the benefits of overcoming through change. You're not a Christian this morning. First item to change on your life is just that, to become a child of God by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The gospel is the good news. You need to hear that. That's how faith comes, Romans 10, 17. That Jesus died and was buried and that he rose again the third day for you so that he could ultimately change you. Repent of your sins, confess the name of Jesus, and be buried with him in baptism. Romans 6, 3 through 5, calls it a death, a burial, and a resurrection. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17, calls it a new creation. Friends, that's the first and most important change in your life. If you are a child of God, and there are things that you need to work on and change in your life, and friends, embrace the difficulty. And if need be, lose some people in your life if necessary. But don't let anything, habit or ease, prevent you from making the necessary changes to be all that God wants you to be. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.